Good morning, Door Creek, and happy spring. Isn't it great? So awesome. Hey, if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and we are really glad that you're here. Our desire is to be a Christ-centered church for all people so that wherever you're at in your own journey, this is a good place for you. Welcome. It's been a great week, too, in the life of our church. We just packed 60,000 meals, over 500 volunteers from Door Creek, couple hundred, yeah, that's a big shout out. A couple hundred family members and parents and kids from our two partner schools, two of the three partner schools, Mendota Elementary on the north side and then west side up in Sun Prairie. So those 60,000 meals are gonna go to kids in a village that I just visited this last November, just above Mission of Hope. This village is called Zoranger. And there's a school there with a couple hundred kids and those 60,000 meals will feed those kids every day they go to school for an entire year. So thanks so much for your support of our partnership there. Your giving here is making a difference literally around the world. And man, if you could have seen the huge murals at Mendota Elementary, they did a whole unit on Haiti to just the kid, get the kids going. A couple of faculty from Mendota Elementary with a couple of our staff visited that school this past January. So there is some serious mojo and momentum going on and it's all beautiful and honoring to Christ. And it's our joy to be able to partner, not with just with schools here in our backyard, but with schools in places like Haiti as well. So we're coming to the end of Romans, last message. Get this, we're gonna do the whole book today. Don't worry about it, there's gonna be bathroom breaks, we're gonna have meals, box lunches are coming, no, I'm just kidding. So uh, grab your Bible, we're in the last two chapters, the last half of chapter 15, and then chapter 16. So here's what I imagine, the whole time I've been thinking about this this letter, it was written to these churches. Remember, it's house churches. We're going to run into five potential house churches in chapter 16. They're gathered in groups of 20 to 30. I'm thinking about the uh, Sunday nights I had as a youth pastor in my early days. All these kids crammed into somebody's family room. And that's what you have. And what you need to understand is somebody brought the letter to those churches and somebody actually read them. And as we get to this section in the letter, I'm thinking if we could see the church right now, the heads were down because Paul is, in a sense, has been calling them out, the Jews and the Gentiles, the weak and the strong, for their petty divisions around these disputable matters of the kind of food that you eat and what you drink and what day's more important than the other day. And so, you know, on the heels of God, Paul saying, don't judge each other, don't show contempt for each other, accept one another, just as God has accepted you. Don't put a stumbling block. I'm, I'm thinking the, the eyes are down and they're going, oh man, he is definitely hitting us right between the eyes. And when it gets to 1513, where he ushers that beautiful benediction, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him so that you, so that you might have hope as you trust in him. I'm thinking they're going, good. It's like, you know, the final prayer after a long sermon, you're going, good, we're almost done and he's been beating us up. It's over, but it wasn't over because the reader kept going. Look at 15 verse 14. 
I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. And at that point, they're going, well, that was really nice of you to say that. And there's something really special when a spiritual leader or anyone just gives a word of encouragement. Hey, you guys, I know I've just been kind of hard on you, talking about the potential that you guys have to not only be divided relationally, but to actually disconnect from my mission in this world, God's mission in this world. That he says, but hey, I just want you to know, when I see you guys and think of you guys, I, I just see you as filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, which means you are able and competent to instruct each other, to build each other up in the faith so that you're a strong church, able to really pursue the mission of Christ in this world. And it's important that we think about these wonderful words, um, the power of that. It was just two weeks ago, right, when Pastor David was preaching on the very opening section of chapter 14 about don't judge each other but accept each other. And then he paused and he, and he just spoke about his own experience as an African-American pastor coming for the first time into the context of a pretty white church. But we're not just all white here, and that's a great thing. But here's what he said. He said, you know, I didn't know how it was going to go. You know, he, he, these are his words, not my words, okay? He said, I'm kind of loud. He said, I sweat a lot. And he's got his little towel, right? He says, I like to clap my hands. He said, you know, I'm a syncopated kind of clapper too. I'm a two and four guy, not a one and three guy. Or if I could, I'd do one, two, three, four. And he went, you know, he's just talking about what it was going to be like for him as an African-American pastor. What is it going to be like for his wife and his kids? And he said, man, you guys, you, you just opened your arms and your hearts to us. You've accepted us. And I've never been more proud of Door Creek when he said that. And we felt that if you were here, you felt that. I was like, oh, that was super kind of you to say. And it made us feel really good. Not proud in an arrogant way, but just feeling good that, that you know, we are leaning in being a Christ-centered church for all people. And so... This is what's going on in this dynamic here. And what's going on here when he talks about filled with not only goodness and knowledge is those need to mark us as a church. Because a church that is all full of goodness but no knowledge is like cotton candy, right? Man, it's sweet, but actually there's nothing really substantively there. And in the end, if that's all we're eating, it's going to rot our teeth. Because if you've got that kind of thing going on, goodness without knowledge, it'll just lead to the flattery that I'll talk about in chapter 16, verse 17 through 20 of the false teachers that lead us astray. On the flip side, if you have knowledge without goodness, you've got truth without love. And that's brutality. That's harsh. That's severe. That's kind of a legalistic approach to ministry. No, all goodness, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct. He goes on in verse 15, and he gives one of the reasons why he wrote the letter. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points there. I'll go, yes, you have. To remind you. He's not giving them anything new. He's reminding them again because of the grace God gave me. So here's where we want to do a quick review of the letter. And what I'm going to call this is seven grace reminders if you're taking notes here. Seven grace reminders that just talk about the good news of 
God's love for us in Christ. So we're gonna move through these quickly. The first grace reminder goes all the way back to the beginning, and this was what he said from the very beginning. The good news is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. So the gospel opens with these words, chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is all about Christ, his person, his work on our behalf. The second grace reminder, the good news is for all people. That's been the subtitle of our series, Romans, good news for all people. In verse 16 of chapter one, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. When, when the Bible talks about Jew and Gentiles, guys, it's saying the Jews and then everybody else is a Gentile. He's saying it's for everyone who believes. It's for the Jew and to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, in this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is ours by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The good news is for all people. And the reason the good news is for all people is because this third reminder, the good news that is offered to all is actually needed by all. And so he talks about the universal need, whoever we are, a religious person, an irreligious person, someone who grew up in Judaism or someone who was a Gentile and grew up in kind of this pagan worship context. Whatever we've, wherever we've been, whoever we are, we all stand before a holy God condemned because we've broken off our relationship with God, saying, God, I fool you on you. I want to run my own life. We're lawbreakers. He keeps talking about that. So in Romans 3.23, it's really clear. For all, not most, not some, not all the Gentiles, for all, Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor, all of us have sinned. And in that, we've fallen short of the glory, the beautiful standard of God, which is seen perfectly in Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The fourth grace reminder reminds us that we receive the good news by God's grace through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So the kindness of God in chapter 2, verse 4, leads us to repentance, leads us to a turnaround. This is how we're doing our life without God's grace and Christ in our life. And there's a complete turnaround. It's the kindness of God that does that. That's a really good principle to remember as you're wrestling with maybe a brother or a sister or a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, someone really close, your best friend who's far from Christ. God's kindness leads to change. In chapter 5 verse 1, it says that we're justified by faith. But here in Romans 10, verse 9, we read this. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe, there's faith, believe in your heart <clears throat> that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, made right with God. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 
So those opening grace reminders are about the opening section of the scriptures of Romans. Now, these, this next one has to do with chapters 5 through 8, which was all about the benefits of the gospel. So chapters 1 through 4 was about the universal invitation of the good news for all people and the universal need of that good news for all people. In 5 through 8, this is like really a big thing for you to pay attention to if you're curious about Christ and Christianity and what it would look like to follow him. These are the benefits that he talks about when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ and recognize him as Lord in control of their whole life. These are the benefits. Number five, the good news, the gospel brings life eternal, peace, love, freedom, hope, victory in the Holy Spirit in our life. And later on, he's going to talk about the joy that is ours through Christ as well. So in chapter five, verse one, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We're right with God. There's a right relationship at the fundamental relationship, our relationship with God that sets us up to actually have peace in our lives and peace with other people. In uh, chapter five, verse five, we're filled with the love of God. It says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so... We were made for relationships. We crave and desire love. That's not a selfish thing. That's part of how we've been wired to know and love God. God's love poured into our heart is this like unbelievable security. It positions us out of the fullness of God's love in our life to actually love others to will their good before our own because we're filled with God's love. We don't need other people to fill up this love bank tank, whatever we're gonna call it, because we're filled with God's love and that's security in a big way. In chapter 6, 18, there's this unbelievable freedom from sin and from guilt. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves or servants to righteousness, living for God seeking justice and mercy on this earth for your neighbor. In chapter seven, he's, he's our victor and there's deliverance through Christ. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then there's the spirit in chapter eight. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. No, we've been freed from fear. God's love chases all that away. Rather, the spirit you receive, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the third member of the Godhead, brings about our adoption, he says. And he reminds us as we call out to God, God, you're our father. The spirit reminds us when maybe our own actions fall short and maybe the, 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 the voices in our head or the voices of the enemy go, you're not a follower of Christ. You're just a flunk out, my fear. You're no good at this at all. No, I'm his child. I'm his daughter. I'm his son. I belong. I've been marked with him by a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven with God in the new heaven here on earth. There's a sixth mark and reminder of grace. We can trust God's plan 
for the people we love that are far. That was chapters 9 through 11. What about the other Jews? Remember this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles? And the Jews are going, man, there's a lot of Gentiles here. Gentiles seem to be coming and placing their faith in Christ left and right. But our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Jewish neighbors, like they're still in the synagogue and they're still offering sacrifices and they don't recognize Jesus as Messiah. Why is that? Has God rejected them? And he makes it clear. No, actually, they've rejected God. That's why their branch has been broken off from the olive tree. You guys, Gentiles, have been grafted in. But one day coming soon, those broken off branches are going to be grafted back in. My plans for all people, including your Jewish brothers and sisters, will be accomplished. In 1129, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. We can trust God's plan for the people that we love that are far from him. Then in chapter 12, there's this pivot, and it's this big-time application. So if we receive the gospel, we need to live the gospel, not just believe it, but believe it through our life, not just believe it in our head, but believe it in our hands, in our heart, in our feet. And so there's that pivot point where he says, look, in light of the mercies of God, all the things I've been talking to you about, I want you to offer yourselves back to God. Read it together with me. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, that's what he's been talking about, chapters 1 through 11, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So he says, man, if you've received the gospel, put your faith in Christ, then you need to offer yourselves back to God as a living sacrifice every day of your life in all kinds of ways, a life of worship. And then in chapter 12, verse 3, and all the way back through chapter 15, 13, he says, and you got to offer your lives back to each other. you got to will the good and the betterment of your brother and sister before your own. So he's talking about that. And that's what he was getting at in 14 and 15 about not judging, but accepting, not showing contempt, but preserving and working for the unity. And when you get to chapter 16 and he lists off a whole bunch of crazy names that I'm going to read to you and maybe I'll get them right. You're going to go, what was that list about? And what I'm going to tell you that list is about is not just 26 names that is really surprising because Paul actually never got to the church in Rome to this point in his life. He's never been to Rome. But what, what we have here is a beautiful picture of a church for all people. The power of the gospel to bring all kinds of diverse, disparate people together. There's this rich, variegated unity that is marked by diversity of race, of social standing and class, and gender. So look at verse 1 of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. So Sancria is right next to Thessalonica. Thessalonica like Madison and Isthmus City. Thessalonica on one side of the Isthmus. On the other side, there's this harbor town, Sancria. That's where Phoebe is a deacon, a servant of the church and of Christ. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. She's going to Rome on business for something. For she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. So most scholars, historians believe Phoebe might actually have delivered the letter 
that Paul and Tertius wrote down, Paul dictated, Tertius wrote, and delivered to the church that made its way to the churches, those five churches that we're going to read about here in chapter 16, that she did that. She's a deacon. She's a servant. She, she was financially backing Paul's ministry and other people as well. We read on, meet up with some Jews, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. We've read about them back in Acts. They're tent makers, right? They'd come to Christ before Paul, and they help him grow in the faith. They risked their lives for me, he said. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. There it is. That's the first house church in Rome. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So an apostle, you've got the disciples who become the apostles. Apostle means a sent out one. But then anyone who was like in a missionary endeavor of going out and sharing the good news was also called an apostle, someone who was commissioned with the message. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household. Here it is, house church number two of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus. There's the third one, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work very hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Greet Ansertus, oh, I knew it was going to happen, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. So another two examples, verse 14 and 15, of house churches. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. So what we have here is a church made of Jews and Gentiles. You've got people of high class and you have people of low class. So you have slaves here, very likely. Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia were common names for slaves in the first century in Rome. Aristobulus. History tells us that he's likely the same Aristobulus who's the grandson of Herod the Great who's the ruler back over Judea and Jerusalem. He's probably very much a friend of the emperor Claudius. So there's members of the imperial family from Rome right there. There's a guy named Rufus. We know about a Rufus. He's the son of Simon of Cyrene in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, the guy who carries the cross for Jesus when he falls under the weight of it, no longer able to carry it. And the soldiers just grab this guy who is coming into Jerusalem for Passover. He's from Cyrene. That is, he's from northern Africa. He's an African. And Paul is telling us that Rufus, very likely the son of Simon of Cyrene, there in the church of Rome. Nine of the 26, did you notice, are women. 
And Paul speaks highly of them all, praising them for their hard work, for their service to Christ and to others, for their financial support, for being deacons and deaconesses and missionaries for the cause of Christ. Paul is often labeled as a chauvinist, and it couldn't be further from the truth. He embraces their ministry in his life, their partnership with him, like Phoebe, who was, right, a patron, a benefactress for his work and endeavors. He loved these women. He honored these women in their work in the cause of Christ in the churches that he's writing to. Nine times he speaks about their unity, how they're united in Christ four times, in the Lord five times. And so Paul is describing this beautiful church that is frail like any and every church, like our church, frail, always prone to divide over things that aren't important, but yet a beautiful mix of all kinds of different people that apart from the grace of God would not be doing life together. The power of the gospel, not to just transform life, but to form us into a new community, Christ family, Christ body, his church, his bride, a beautiful bride working God's mission in this world. Now we're gonna double back. And in this next section, we're gonna look at the description of a gospel minister and we're gonna look at the marks of gospel ministry. So go back to chapter 15, verse 16. He says, because of the grace God that was given to him, that he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That was his focus. Peter had a focus on the Jews, Paul on the Gentiles. That's what God had called him to. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So he's a minister or a servant. He's also a priest. We're noticing that. He's describing himself as having like a priestly function in his ministry of proclaiming the gospel of God. That's what priests do. They speak for God. So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Priests also offer sacrifices, but Christ is the ultimate end-all sacrifice. And the only sacrifice he's talking about here is actually offering up the Gentiles back to God as his pleasing sacrifices. God, you have won these people through your son's life and death, and I've had a part of it, and I'm bringing them back to you as an offering of your grace and of your glory. He goes on. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. It's not about me, it's about Jesus, he's saying, in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which is like modern-day Albania or Montenegro, they're on the western side of Asia Minor and just across the Adriatic Sea from modern-day Greece. He says, I've been faithful in fully proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And it's always been my ambition. It's his passion to do what? To preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. It's not an ego trip. It might sound like it until we keep reading. Rather, as it is written, now he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, and he's saying the reason I want to take it to people that have never heard is because of this word of prophecy that says, those who are not told about him will see, 
People who weren't of Jewish background who had the promises of God pointing to Messiah. And those who've not heard will understand. I want to be a part of God's mission for all people, the Gentiles, the nations. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Man, I've wanted to go to Rome, but man, there's still people who haven't heard about it. I know that you've heard about the gospel and I'm sending this letter to build you up in Christ. The reason I haven't come is because there's so many more people that need to hear of God's love for them in Christ. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, in other words, he's at the main stops and it's moving out to smaller spots. Uh, He said, I'm in a position to do something. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so. But he's saying, is this going to be stopover because I'm heading to go to Spain because those people don't know it either. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me probably financially on my journey there to Spain after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Then he goes on, he talks about, look, I'm going to be there, but I got a stop to make. I've been collecting this offering for the poor people back, the Jews that are now Christ followers back in Jerusalem. There's been a big famine. I've been collecting up in Macedonia and Achaia. I'm bringing back this relief offering to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to come back to you on my way to Spain. And so he says in verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, to join me. So in his ministry, in his partnership, in my struggle. So gospel ministry is hard. By praying to God for me, pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers. Pray for my safety, the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contributions I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will, and in your company be refreshed, that God of peace be with you all. So what are the marks of a servant of the gospel? Well, we have a priestly function. We, we speak for God. Ministry is all about the word of God in us, the word of God through the power of the spirit going through us. He says, I have a priestly function. I'm going to speak for God. And sometimes that would have a prophetic edge, like we'll see about the warning of false teachers back in chapter 16, verse 17 through 20. He says, I'm not just going to speak for God. I've been commissioned to do this. I'm I'm an apostle. I'm I'm a preacher. And through the power of the Spirit, there's these authenticating miracles that have been a part of my life that may not be part of our ministry. But let me tell you, it's not uncommon when a missionary goes to a far-off place where they haven't heard the gospel, that there are these miraculous things that go on to authenticate the messenger and the message. But it's always about that, to support it. It's not about power. It's not a power religion, Christianity. It's It's a humble, giving our lives like Christ for other people. He's a church planner, he says, right? Not building on anybody else's uh, foundation. He's a team mate and a team leader. He's got partners in the work. He's a relief worker, right? He's bringing gifts to the church. So those are the things that describe him as a minister that ought to describe us. We have a priestly. We're praying for people. We're speaking for God. We're, we're, we're preachers. We're We're planting seeds of the gospel, whether we're going to far off places or just to someone that God's brought in our life, pointing them to Christ. We're in partnership. It's not about solo work. We're caring about the whole person. We're relief workers. It's not just about people's spiritual needs. It is that, but not just that. 
And there's this prophetic edge when it comes to our role. It's a protective thing. It's an encouraging thing. It brings comfort. It doesn't hit people over the head with a two-by-four to help them stay true to Christ. So I want to point out seven hallmarks of the gospel ministry that Paul had that should actually mark our ministry. So maybe you're a small group leader. Maybe you help out with our kids. Maybe you help out with our student ministries. Maybe you're part of Celebrate or one of our support group ministries. Maybe you are you know, someone who's thinking about starting something new. These are hallmarks of gospel ministry that ought to mark our church and any ministry in our church. The first we notice is the glory of God in Christ is the ultimate goal. That's what he says in verse 17. Did you see it? Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. It's not about me. It's about him. And anything that's happening through me, it's all him, all the time, his spirit, all the time. Second, he has a firm confidence in the gospel message. A hallmark of gospel ministry is we have confidence that this is not only God's word, but this word is alive that it was given to us by God through the Holy Spirit to men over 1,500 years in three different languages and it holds together. Moses says it's not an idle word. It's not this little dinky thing like any other thing. It is God's word. The Bible opens up with God speaking this universe into place. It's powerful. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. He has great confidence in the word of God to do its work. That's my job. That's our job, that we don't lose our nerve and think we need something novel. He didn't bring anything novel. He brought reminders that went back to the prophets of the Old Testament and revealed and taught that Jesus Christ is the promised Savior that God has been talking about. And he keeps pointing people to Christ as he preaches the word. Confidence in the gospel message. Third hallmark is we call people to respond to Christ, to place their trust in Christ. And with that, fourth, there's this passion for the lost. Gospel ministry is passionate, not just for building up the body, but seeing and reaching people that are far from God. Remember what he said earlier in the letter? I wish that I was cursed. I wish that I could go to hell so that my brothers and sisters in, in Judaism would find their way to faith in Christ. Unbelievable passion. He says, I'm going to go to people who've never heard it. Not because I want my name plastered around. I want them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Passionate for the lost. We would, we would never honor Christ by getting so comfortable that we turn this place into like a country club. We're part of a rescue mission. We're the hope for the world. We're God's plan A for the world. The church is. And as we go with the gospel, we need to note that gospel ministry is holistic. It's the whole gospel to the whole person. So the gospel addresses and meets our spiritual needs, of course, but our emotional, our social needs, it also deals with our physical needs. And so here's Paul 
and he's taking the gospel all over. And as he's doing it, he's like set up his own nonprofit and he's got world relief going. And he's collecting funds so he can bring those funds back to hurting people that need those resources because they're suffering through a really hard famine back in Jerusalem. It's holistic. That's what's going on at Door Creek all the time. Holistic ministry. Team ministry is a huge mark. He prays, he asks for their assistance, probably financially in verse 24. He asks for their prayers. That's part of the team thing. Wherever we find Paul, he's always in partnership. If you go to chapter 16 in verse 21, he's going to mention Timothy, who's been a partner with him a long time. You go to just about any one of his letters at the very beginning, he has this greeting, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. Paul, it doesn't happen at the beginning here, but it's all through the back here, 21 through 23. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, the director of public works. I love that. And by the way, that's the same Erastus whose name is carved in stone that we saw in Thessalonica. Same guy right there. You can go there today and see it. So he's all about partnership. But at the heart of gospel ministry, because it's all about Christ, is it's all about grace. Gospel ministry centers on grace. It's a beautiful thing that Paul didn't say, guys, you should know better. You've had the scriptures and, and, and you've got the Old Testament law, so just try harder. Come on, you can do this. Gentiles, start reading your Old Testament and start keeping the law. It was a gracious ministry in his teachings to say, Christ has kept the law. So you're freed from the demands of the law. You still want to give your life in obedience to Christ, but you don't have to mind all the P's and Q's of the law. The purpose of the law was not just to reveal God's holy character, but to reveal that you can't do this, that you need Christ. And so it was gracious in his teaching. It was gracious in his warning in chapter 16, 17 through 20, when he says, not this time, hey, there's some, some, there's some guy. Well, let me read it to you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to Watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. He, he's, he doesn't say accept them, like he said about your weaker brother or sister or your stronger brother or sister, the Jews. No, he says, watch out for them. Stay away from them. That was a gracious warning to protect them. And there is the grace about the hope of a better day. Verse 20 of chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Man, we know the end of the story. You guys are struggling. It's hard. But we know the end of the story. And I want to give you a hope to just remind you again, God wins. God wins. Jesus' death on the cross, when he comes back and makes all things right, he will put an end to his nemesis and our nemesis for all time. He will crush. And our ears are ringing if we remember that promise in Genesis 3.15. Eve, one of your descendants, male descendant, is going to have his heel bruised. Ah, but he is going to crush the enemy's head. Speaking about the serpent who is uh, a figure for Satan himself. So he says, it's going to happen. We know that there's going to be a better day, that Christ wins. 
So you can trust in the God of hope and you can be filled with all hope as you trust in this great God of hope. And so he says, here's what you need to remember as he finishes it out, that God's gonna keep you on your feet and in your faith. And this is like a huge thing. And we'd miss it if we didn't know the import of this word establish. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. That means to set you up and remain immovable. In my mind, I, when I think of something that's immovable, I think of something like this, just this massive mountain. And you know what? Life is hard. And I don't know what, you know, life is throwing at you right now. But if you're a follower of Christ, when life is hard, man, it's really hard to stay on our feet, to be grounded in Christ. It's just easy to have doubt. It's easy to slip back. It's easy to wonder if God really loves and cares and, and if the end of the story is going to be true. Is he going to finish what he started? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident that what he began, he's going to finish. And man, it's just good to know that our confidence as we go through a fallen world in the middle of the story when things are knocking us back and forth and we wonder if we're ever going to cross the finish line with our eyes on the prize, Christ, that we got to remember our confidence confidence is in this, that God is going to set us up by his grace in such a way that we are immovable. And that is powerful, immovable grace, immovable love, an immovable standing that is not about our good works, but our faith in the one who did it all for us. The immovable Holy Spirit that is not going to leave us like he left King Saul in the Old Testament. He's not going to leave us. He has sealed us till that final day. Immovable freedom from our guilty past. Immovable hope. Immovable joy. Oh, may we always keep our confidence that by the grace of God, we would finish well, not because we're going to try hard, but because our God is able for his own glory and for our good to make us stand immovable. That's his work. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, Jude writes, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's our God. That's our confidence. When you go, I wonder, am I going to stay in this? It is so hard. Am I going to? True saving faith in Christ, you are locked in, and by the grace of God, you are immovable in Christ to the very end. May our confidence be there. May our trust be in Christ. Is that where it's at today? Have you placed your trust in Christ? This is the time to do it. This, if you've never done it, this is the first time. And if you've done it, it's time to do it again. And say, my trust is in you, Christ. You, Christ, for all that I need and long for, for peace, for freedom from my guilty past, for new power and purpose today, and living hope for a better day. I'm placing my trust in Christ. I'm acknowledging that you are the Son of God. You proved it through your death and resurrection, and I want you to have full sway and control of my life, and I want to live for you. I want to give my life for you, and I need all that you offer and I want to rest in you. I want that hope. I need that joy. I need that purpose and meaning and hope in my life. And we stand in God's immovable grace that reminds us that nothing can separate us from his love. 
And so Romans keeps reminding us to keep living out. It's not just about here. We need to know the scriptures. We gotta live the scriptures. Don't just hear the word of God, James says. Do the word of God. Do it. By God's grace, may we be that kind of a church who's living out the gospel, lives of worship, offering ourselves to God, offering ourselves to other people, willing their good before our own, the good of our brothers and sisters, the good of those that God has placed us in community with here in Madison, Greater Dane County. May we be those kinds of people. And you know what? We're living it out when we care about the needs of the poor like a meal pack. We're living it out when we send members of our church to go do a marriage retreat for our partner pastors in far off Rwanda who've never experienced anything like this. Just building into their marriages. It's a beautiful thing. We're living out the gospel when we send a couple dozen high school kids down to Honduras to help with the Great Commission Church there in La Sierra, Honduras. We're living out the gospel when a group of mops hear about a young widow who just had a newborn and just lost her husband to a tragic accident down in Texas. We're living out the gospel when we come together and pray for each other in our small groups, when we teach our little kids, when we serve in our schools, when we help a middle school student who's struggling by just speaking grace and truth in their life. We're living out the gospel. And may that always be true as we're passionate for the people that are far from God. Oh, may we just think about, not the, que- the question is not, am I passionate for people who are lost, but who am I passionate for? Who? Who are the people that God has placed in my life, in my family, my circle of friends, in the neighborhood, at the workplace, at school, on the campus? Who are the people that God's placed in my life that are far from him? Would I have confidence that Christ is pursuing them that Christ would pursue him through me, that Christ would give me the right things to do and to say as I seek their good, ultimately, of knowing Christ as their Savior. May that, may that even have an intersect this Easter somehow with someone that God's placed in your life that's far from God. God, help us to be a church that is full of grace, always eyes on Christ, giving our lives away like him. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we pray that like the benediction, you, the God of hope, would fill us with all joy and that the joy that we have in you would be our strength and you'd fill us with all peace as we continue to place our trust in you and in your son so that there would be an overflow, Lord, of that hope by the power of your spirit. And so grant faith for the first time as your spirit stirs hearts. Renew our faith in you, Lord Jesus. May our confidence be fully in you, God, in what you've done to bring us to yourself, to give us new life, and to keep us on our feet to the very end. May this church be full of goodness and knowledge. May we grow as a church for all people like that church in Rome. And may you grow our hearts for those who are far from you, for their good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.